Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's one of those days when the news is full of things that we nearly know. Speculation. In Israel, there are hopes of a hostage deal. In the UK, there's plenty of briefings and educated guesses about tax cuts that may or may not be announced by Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, on Wednesday. We're going to talk about the Middle East, but we're going to save the British economy until Wednesday, when at least we're going to know what he's actually said. So on Wednesday evening, please do join us in our newsroom in London for another edition of the News Meeting Live. Our political editor, Kat Nealon, is going to be there. So too is the FT's consumer editor, Claire Barrett. She's going to be trying to figure out what the deal means for you. And the Slow Newscast host, Basha Cummings, is going to join us to talk about pretty much everything else. You can be a part of it. Join us at 6.30pm on Wednesday by booking your place at tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. You can also find details in this episode's description. Now, let's get on with today's episode. It's Monday, the 20th of November. Welcome to the news meeting. The tech world has been thrown into chaos over the weekend when the company that gave us ChatGPT fired its CEO. Microsoft has confirmed that the former head of OpenAI, Sam Altman, will be joining the company. Sir Patrick Vallance, the chief scientific advisor during the pandemic, tells the COVID inquiry Boris Johnson was bamboozled by the science. There are indications of progress on a deal to free some of the 239 Israelis being held hostage in Gaza by Hamas. Voters in Argentina have elected a right-wing political outsider. Mr. Malay, known as El Loco, or the Madman, pulled off a major upset. I'm joined by Tortoise's deputy editor, Giles Wattel. Hello. And by our political editor, Kat Nealon. Hello. And, excitingly, by Jess Phillips. (laughs) Hello. I'm not sure it's that exciting. Well, it is just in this, because I think that we asked you weeks and weeks ago to say, will you come and do this? Thinking, that'd be great. We'll have your view on the news. And then, of course, last week, you became... The news, yeah. You did. Committed news. I believe that's the terminology. You committed an act of news. Yeah, I didn't... I thought it was yeah. against Labour policy. To commit news. Yes. Yeah. It's never been against Jess Phillips's policy, I don't think. To, uh, but did, did you... But presumably you did have... Did you have a long think about it before it happened? Or was it one of those things where... On I the mean, weeks long. Uh, weeks long and within minutes. I mean, it's both things. You, you think about the issues constantly and uh, the angles uh, and the... You try everything you can to 
not be put in that position and to talk to people and to move the dial and to change things. So it it's very slow in one sense. Um, and then really, ultimately, you decide in the second that you step through the lobby. That's what you do. I mean... So exactly what happened was there was the vote... And in deciding to vote for ceasefire, you knew that you were going to be resigning as a minister on the front bench. Yes, that's correct. And so we don't know each other well enough to ask this question. You can ask ask me anything. I'm a massive oversharer. Okay. So one of the things that I find so difficult about this is the extent to which we talk about it in terms of our politics, knowing that we have next to no impact on what's actually going to happen in Gaza, in Israel. And so how do you weigh... The fact that as the minister or shadow minister on domestic abuse and safeguarding, you really do have an impact, Jess. You really do make a difference. Mm -hmm. And this, even though it's a point of principle, it actually doesn't make a difference to what's happening in the Middle East. I don't think that I made a difference because I had a job title in the position uh, as the shadow minister for domestic abuse and safeguarding. I think I made a difference because I know what I'm talking about and I've been campaigning on it for... I made as much of a difference when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader. It was make, me that made the difference. But won't you make a difference by being, by shaping potentially the next government? I can still do that. There's absolutely no reason why you can't still do that. I mean, the idea that you can only work with the people who are on your front bench is something that should be, you know, well, it's not true. Mm. Like So if you think of, for example, uh, the chairs of the select committees who are not on the Labour front bench, so you, Dame Diana Johnson, who n- literally nobody has done more to get the, um, the infected blood inquiry into, um, well, into the, the state that it is in now where anybody might be getting any compensation, where there is a massive inquiry. She didn't do that by virtue of uh, anything other than her ability to campaign for the people that Mm. she meets along the way and the idea that the Labour Party wouldn't take its lead on what their policy should be on that from her, the expert, just, well, it's not very grown up. Would it be to be like, oh, you're not in our gang so we're not going to listen to you even though you know what you're talking about and that's not what the Labour Party is like, thankfully. (laughs) And what about those people, Jess, who say, look, of course you want a ceasefire. Everyone wants a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. But if you ask for a ceasefire or press for a ceasefire before the hostages have come back, before mm-hmm. in some form or other Hamas has been meaningfully disabled, mm-hmm. in effect you're saying Israel doesn't have a right to defend itself. Well, that, that's people's own analysis. I think that Israel does have a right to defend itself. I don't see how the siege of Gaza has made any difference to the hostages. Have any been released in the time? I think two have been released. So... Currently, the the hostage situation, which, of course, in voting last week, we voted for the release of the hostages. It wasn't just for a ceasefire, Mm. um, is it is currently Israel's action helping those hostages? I mean, that's the that's the exam question. And, And at the moment, the answer is no for today. And then for tomorrow and the next 10 years, do I think that the current military action that is ongoing will make the blindest bit of difference to making Israel more secure in the future. I actually think that in Israel defending itself for the future, this is also not right. A ceasefire is also the right thing to do. And what about people on the other side of it, Jess, who say, actually, not only 
what you did is right, but what you pointed to is something more troubling inside the Labour Party and in Keir Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party, which is either listening too much to Tony Blair or getting yourself in a position which is too focused on winning and not enough on the principle of how Labour would govern. Look, I think that Keir Starmer has a different exam question to answer to the one that I have to answer as the Member of Parliament for Birmingham Yardley and to pretend otherwise. And the idea that this creates some sort of ruxious split within the Labour Party that harms the ability for us to win an election only happens if that's what it becomes and that isn't what it is. This is a... a a feeling of hearts and minds differing slightly. That's mm. it. And I can see it from Keir Starmer's perspective and he can see it from mine. Can, like, do you think that's right? Do you, do you think that it is differences of opinion on, a, admittedly, a very fraught subject? Or is it someone described to me over the weekend as what could be a wrecking ball for not just Starmer's Labour Party, but for the European left, much more divisive and problematic than perhaps Jess describes? I mean, I think Jess is right to say at the moment that's not how I see it. And I, you know, I think there are obviously some people who feel very, very deeply about this, and some of them are in Jess Phillips' constituency, and that is probably one of the kind of mm-hmm. critical factors in, in her decision last week and some of her colleagues who also resigned. Um, it is, it is, and I think, again, Jess is right to sort of talk about it as Keir Starmer is answering a different question to the one that Jess is answering. Jess is representing her constituents. Keir Starmer is presenting himself as the p- potential future leader of the next government. And therefore, what he is doing is different to what Jess is doing. For what it's worth, thank you, because it's not just the point that you make about what you think, um, but also hearing you say, look, this is what I think and this is what Keir Starmer thinks and he understands where I'm coming from and I understand where he's coming from. It feels like we just don't get enough of people saying, look, we do see things differently and we understand that we do. Yeah, and for Uh, what it's worth, I think your your statement... Really, you could feel how difficult it was for you. It wasn't wasn't a flippant decision and it wasn't something that you kind of... I don't feel like it was a decision that you'd already made, you know, and we're no, just biding the time. I mean, I'd time. made it and unmade it like 25 yeah. times by that <laughs> point. So Monday morning when I arrive off the train, I'd made one decision and then it changed about it changed about 30 times because, you know, like as you should expect of your elected representatives that they wrestle with such difficult uh, things. Um, you, that, But I have to say, if the... One thing I really hated since it happened is is a sort of a certain amount of beatification of myself, uh, which you know I'm going to enjoy for a minute. <laughs> while uh, you know I'm only human, but if what you are expecting from your elected representatives is a piece of action that took me literally less than thirty seconds, aim higher, aim considerably higher than that. That. I cannot just rest on that particular laurel. There has to be action that stems out of that position that I took. I can't just take it for the sake of, like, you know, a ticker tape parade. So it has to be about now working with the people who I represent to take action that will actually help both the people in Gaza and the peace in Israel. <laughs> like, And that is what I will intend to do. I think that if you do vote and think that that is enough, like deeds, 
not words is uh and so i just think it's it's sort of slightly pathetic to just expect that and people should now what what's next what can we do what could, would can we do that would help well, right now, what's next? I'm afraid it's not that. It's not that. No, not that. <laughs> what's next is us figuring out what else uh, is happening in the world and what could or should lead the news. Um, just part of the thinking here, I hope you know, mm-hmm. is that we try and hold these news meetings like any other news meeting, trying to figure out what should lead the news because we think it demonstrates, if you like, what we think matters, but also what we know and don't know about a story. And so I hope each of you will pitch yours, Charles, Cat, Jess. I'm going to come to you first, Charles. Long story short, what's yours? In the strange world of AI, money beats safety. Go figure. I think I know what that's about. It's an obsession of mine. Okay, Cat. Mine is crossing the line from protest to intimidation. That's a story that sort of covers everything. Yes. <laughs> and Jess. Mine is uh, exempt accommodation, taxpayers pay to exploit people. <laughs> Great. I mean, not a great headline, exempt accommodation, but taxpayers pay to exploit people. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, a strap line at the land. Just let's come to that in a minute. Let's just do the, I'm assuming you're talking about OpenAI? Yes. This is a story that might seem complicated because it all happened very quickly over the weekend, but I think it's actually quite simple. It's the story of Sam Altman's removal from OpenAI by its board And the complicated part was just wrinkles, which changed nothing over the weekend, whereby the board seems to have had second thoughts and said, would you come back? But by that time, it was moot. Microsoft, which is OpenAI's biggest investor by a very long way, had already said, that's okay, Sam, you come and set up a new AI venture with us, Microsoft. Um, The reason I think it's quite simple, uh, just to get through the what of it is because there was a split. It seems clearer and clearer as people try to analyse this. I should say, I'm not in Silicon Valley, so I don't know, but the the reports seem pretty pretty clear. There was a split within OpenAI between the board, which is a non-profit board um, led by a co-founder of the whole outfit called Ilya Sutskiva. That's how I'm choosing to pronounce it. (laughs) Go for it. Uh, and Sam Altman himself, uh, who uh, set up a few years after setting up the whole shebang, a for-profit subsidiary whose main purpose was to raise shed loads of money to enable OpenAI to produce uh, ChatGPT and not just to produce it, to make it available for everybody. One of the things I learned just this morning about it is the enormous amount of electricity and energy that you need. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Are you interested in this stuff? I am. I mean, I'm not. I'm married to a man who works for a tech startup um, and that is the beginning, middle and end of everything I know about his job. (laughs) Um, But what about ChatGPT? Do you use it? Never once used it in my life. I believe my children probably do to do their homework. Um, (laughs) So the split seems to be between safety on the part of the non-profit board and let's go for this commercially on the part of Sam Altman and the for-profit subsidiary. The board felt that Sam Altman hadn't been straight about his side hustles and about his true ambitions and uh, abruptly uh, told him on Friday that he was gone. Now, I told you I had some gold, right? The New York Times once referred to Sam Altman as the Oppenheimer of... I think they got it fundamentally wrong, right? You've seen Oppenheimer. What's happened here is Sutskiva is the Oppenheimer 
and Sam Altman is the Edward Teller, right? Oppenheimer is the guy who pulled back, recognised the potential for destruction of his technology and was very anxious to, to pull back and actually handed a lot of stuff to Klaus Fuchs, who handed it to the Soviets, so we had nuclear parity. Edward Teller is Sam Altman. Is Edward Teller is the father of the H-bomb. And the how? Do you want anything on the how? Go. Um, it was a... a let me think of uh, a, a. You're talking about the how of how he was pushed out. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a cluster beep, right? But is, I so, can tell we can swear. Yeah, we can swear. It was a cluster yeah, but, book. There yeah, you go. Thank you so much. <laughs> Just to get to the boardroom thing. So when I worked at the FT, there was a thing called it was midnight in the boardroom. Like what that meant was, can you just give us something of a drama like the corporate drama? The reason why I I am really obsessed by this story is you can't have Sam Altman go to Congress and say that AI has the capacity to do huge damage to society, humanity and democracy. And then three, four months later, he gets pushed out in a kind of boardroom scuffle and think, oh, well, that's just another corporate story. If that, that's the reason, Jess, why I think it's a mm. much, much bigger political story, is that there's no oversight Terrible. of who these people are and the basis on which they're doing judgments. And if you look at the statement, the statement is bizarre. It seems to suggest they couldn't trust him, but then they don't explain why. And, and I don't know, Giles, whether we've got any And then they asked him why. back. I didn't realise they'd asked him back. I thought mm. they'd sacked him. His yeah. sacking really put him on the map for me. They, they, they sacked him. No, no, but the thing that was amazing is they sacked him on the Friday. Right? They told the investors. So there was a wonderful line, which was the sacking came as a surprise to the tech community and the investors. Microsoft alone put in $13 billion. If, if, you, if someone's putting $13 billion into your company, you think, you know what, before we sack the chief executive, we might just give them a call. Just check with them. Just Or just out of, like, politeness. <laughs> That's the thing that's extraordinary to me about the story. It just completely seems like mayhem. I think what's happening underneath is that a lot of people who initially said, we must be very careful with this technology, have thought, sod it, let's make as much money as we can. And Elon Musk is one of them. Oh, and that's, your, and that's, your, that's your teller point, is yeah, that, that Sam Altman is into the commercial exploitation of this. Yeah. And your theory is that Sotskiva and the board were like, hold your horses. Yes. All right. Can I just do a slightly po-faced moment on this. Sam Altman warns the US political system that there is real risk with AI. The board sacks him for reasons that are not clear or transparent. The owners, Microsoft, Sequoia, don't then either explain what the board sacked him for. They hire him, Sam Altman. So we're then left neither with accountability of the company OpenAI or visibility of what this company or what these men, um, Altman and I think one of his colleagues there, Brockman, what they're going to do inside Microsoft. I guess what I'm saying is that overall, we talk about AI now, or they talk about AI as an existential threat. Mm -hmm. And yet the system of accountability, the system of guardianship seems, you know, completely haywire. Right. So they're all men. Can I just point this out? I know that he was replaced briefly by a woman. For about maybe. 36 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Made Lynn, Liz Truss look like a long-standing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, there is a real worrying group think about that. Uh, Giles, it feels like that open AI story is going to run and run. Thank you. Jess, exempt accommodation. Yes, so... Um, and can you go slowly, because I suspect this is something that none of us understand. It's very complicated, and actually it's the reason why, even though it has been sort of known scandal, that 
it gets very little both political and um, press traction because it is quite complicated. Um, so exempt accommodation, just to describe, people think it's HMOs, which is Houses of Multiple Occupation. It isn't. A house of multiple occupation has to be regulated and go through planning permission. So put those to one side. Exempt accommodation literally is as it sounds. It is exempt from any of the regulations around housing. Um, but it is used to support, she says, uh, in inverted commas, vulnerable groups of people at an advanced housing benefit rate. So one of the reasons that even in all of us, the years of austerity and the years to cutting the welfare bill, which again is in the news, uh, they're sort of desperate to cut the welfare bill again this week in the, in the autumn statement, one one uh, of the categories, as well as pensions, which obviously always goes up and we try and forget that that's the welfare bill uh, because we like old people. Um, one of the categories that never that hasn't reduced at all, but has massively es- um, escalated is housing benefit. And it is because largely because of the proliferation of this very, very bad accommodation that is meant to support vulnerable people, people fleeing domestic abuse, people who have been victims of sexual exploitation, care leavers, general homelessness, uh, people coming out of prison. Uh, They are basically, they'll go to their local council, they'll say, oh, we're going to put you in this accommodation because it's available. And some often shady landlord uh, working with a shady umbrella company uh, and when I say shady, it's really hard to find out sometimes who owns the building that is next door to you, basically will place all of those five groups of people that I just said together. So you could be coming out of prison for being a rapist and being housed with a rape victim at an advanced level of housing benefit. And this has happened because the government massively took the funding out of proper supported accommodation that was commissioned by local councils. And when that happened, they needed something essentially to fill the gap of homelessness accommodation. So they basically allowed anyone who had a house, and in places like where I live, if you can buy a big Victorian house for under 150 grand, you can be making £700 a room per week. And this is it, isn't it? So the exemption, if I understand it right, Jess, is that you're not capped at what you can rent out the room because the idea originally was because you're putting more money into care and support. But that was the idea, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. That you would exempt the cap on how much you could rent the room out as the owner or service provider. And so for vulnerable people you will get an advance in housing benefit that is above. So if your local uh, housing allowance rate to rent out a property in your area is like £52 a week, here it is £400, £500 so a your week. Return, so, if you, so if you buy the house, your return... Is massive. And just so I understand it, that rental is ultimately paid by... The taxpayer. Through the local council. No, through the Department of Work and Pensions. Oh, I see, see, through benefit. Yeah, it's through the, the the Department of Work and Pensions pays it. And to so I buy a house today. It's got six bedrooms, two living rooms. I now turn that into 12 bedrooms. I chop them, them up, put a few stud walls in. I say I'm going to run a specialist service for victims of domestic abuse. I, I mean, 
you have going to have to suspend disbelief here now and pretend that I have no expertise in this area uh, and I'm a man mm-hmm. um, and so I um, people often call me Jeff when they hear my name when I'm talking to them on the phone so fine I, I can just say okay there is the level of scrutiny about the service that I am providing within that accommodation is zero so the Department of Work and Pensions don't do anything to assess whether you should be being paid it at the highest rate. The local council is meant to do a bit of an assessment, but we used to, I mean, I used to run refuges and you'd have, and we would get advanced um, housing benefit for the work that we did, but and we would have somebody come from the council every year and do an assessment of whether we could uh, have it. I'm talking in the heyday when there was probably 50 people at Sandwell Council who did that. Now in Birmingham, there's currently two for that. A city of a million people. So there's no, so basically nobody checks. It's a paper-based exercise. And then I start getting 12 lots of £600 a week to put domestic abuse victims. Now, in a, an alleged refuge that called itself that, it, on two occasions in Birmingham in the last five years, women have been murdered in that accommodation. What is the, what is the rationale for not regulating it? I, they love landlords. I don't know. Uh, that I, that but, I not, mean, we know that they are scrabbling are cons- around for pennies at the minute, as, you know, especially ahead of the autumn because statement. Because they would... Uh, uh, I, I literally have no idea what their rationale is. So you're actually not picking a fight with the exemption as much as the policing of the exemption, the regulation and oversight no, I don't, of the exemption. I don't actually don't mind the... Uh, well, well, I don't want them to be exempt of all regulation. I want lots of regulation. I'm, I'm absolutely fine with the idea of advanced rent being paid in supported accommodation. But it actually has to be supportive. There is nobody getting any better. These people are dwindling in this accommodation for decades. It is an actual scandal. Jess, a lot to think about there. Let's take a beat and then I'm going to come, Kat, to you and your story about intimidation. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cap yours protest. Mine is slightly related to the conversation that we had at the start of of uh, the meeting, um, which is uh, after the vote on the ceasefire in Gaza. There have been widespread protests outside MPs, constituency offices, and um, the Guardian is reporting at least one MP's house. But I've not been able to establish 
whether that's the case. And um, asked about this over the weekend, Rachel Reeves said... Some of the protests, I believe, over the last few days have crossed the line from protest to intimidation. Protesting outside people's homes, putting pressure on them in that way is totally unacceptable. Now, the reason why I wanted to pick this story is because this is just another moment in an ongoing situation that all MPs, and I'm pleased that just said she hasn't had it this time round, but I know you've had it previously. (laughs) It's just a daily occurrence that you get a death threat You know, especially if you're a woman, but not exclusively. I regularly speak to particularly female MPs about how there are court cases happening regularly. I was talking to a... Court cases? About about stalkers and and people making death threats. Um, I was talking to a conservative MP who was a minister at the time and we were just having a, a casual chat. She burst into tears because someone who had made a death threat to her had been picked up just outside Parliament and the police had just told her. I think what social media has done is kind of given this sense of ownership and proximity so people feel like they have a right to tell an MP what they should be doing and get very, very angry if they don't. And just to continue on the kind of list of things that I've kind of been picked up on and and not really been able to report, there was one MP that I was speaking to fairly recently who told me even before she was elected, she was advised by the police to install a panic room because of the level of threats that they anticipated her getting. Um, There was... I'm not going to sort of go into detail, but I'm sure Jess remembers there was a vote in the summer before recess um, around what I would sort of euphemistically describe as sex education, um, in which shortly after the MPs that voted against against this vote were um, their pictures were screen grabbed and put on Twitter. And as a result, their security had to be upped. One of them had to call his partner and warn him, look, there's, you know, there's going to be some police activity outside the flat you know they're just making sure that you're okay and the problem is yes I understand the need and the right for people to protest and it's a really really important part of our democracy but a lot of it has crossed the line and MPs are very very conscious and I know Jess she was a friend of yours so I don't want to kind of get too kind (laughs) of you know emotional about it but with what happened to Joe Cox and for the Conservatives particularly what happened to David Amos they are both really very much at the front of mind and so when you have these sort of high drama moments that we kind of gleefully report as journalists as being quite an exciting kind of moment actually they have really real world Mm. consequences not just for the MP their family and their staff as well. Jess what's How's how's this moment, what's happening in the Middle East, changing the way in which MPs feel, or some MPs feel yeah. vulnerable? I, I think that the issue in the Middle East, uh, it, it seems like an obvious binary, and that's the problem I have with the protest more so than anything else. I think it's perfectly fine to protest outside people's offices as long as it is completely peaceful. Um, but it's not. There's been vandalism. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh god, the, the van- vandalism, also aggression, racism, any of that. I mean, I mean, the thing that uh, I think is really, really sad about the fact that it has felt like so much heat has happened because of what is happening in the Middle East is that only light is going to solve the issue. 
and my husband's view on this, and he's not a politico at all, um, his comment on David Cameron becoming the foreign secretary, for example, was, what does he even know? He's not even foreign. <laughs> Just to give you an idea of uh, <laughs> where, where my husband's uh, political education is. Um, the, um, he was like, oh, you know, it's almost as if this is what you know, was wanted yeah. by Iran. Like, you know, like, yeah. like, why don't we talk about the fact that, like, there was a, there is a plan by actors in this field to cause massive pain, dissent, chaos elsewhere. Um, and I just feel sad that that has been the case. I think sometimes you've got to make a stand and uh, and make a bang, like no two ways about it. Mm. But I think genuinely, if you want members of parliament to vote a certain way, I'm just not sure this is the way to get that outcome. Yeah, no, it's the experience of listening that is the most affecting right 100%. Now. Like, you know, you feel like, oh, gosh, like, People's real personal, and, and, and I mean, in my constituency, who knew this always happens? It's like when Jeremy Corbyn said that he was going to nationalise um, the internet. I, I'd found out on that day that almost everybody in my constituency had their pension with BT. <laughs> 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 it's like, and it turns out since what has happened in the Middle East that I seemingly have one of the largest populations of British Gazans, mm-hmm. and I had no idea <laughs> that that was the case until this moment. <laughs> Um, and listening to them has been incredibly moving uh, throughout this period. Um, really kind, like the level of kindness. Some of the people who we were helping get out of the through the Rafa crossing and then uh, got stuck in Cairo, which is a bit of a bore lake, but we sorted. Literally were like ringing me and saying, do you need me to bring anything back for you? Like, I was like, I, I can live without a big table around. <laughs> Get yourself, that. just get yourself home. Like, you know, there's like the sort of, then you've got people being like, you've got to do it like this. And you've got the people in natural Gaza going, do you, do you want some dates? So the way this works, Jess, is everyone's got to make a call on what story they think should lead the news. You can't choose your own. Okay. So which one would you choose between the sacking of Sam Altman and intimidation of MPs? Which well, I don't know anything news? about to, uh, uh, Sam Altman. Like I say, it really put uh, put it on the map, and I am now slightly anxious that I need to know more about it. So you would lead with that? Yeah. And then, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lead with a story that's just about me. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't read that story because I know it. <laughs> Giles. I'm going with exempt accommodation on the Benthamite principle that it affects hundreds of thousands of people, whereas Cat's story is very serious but affects at a maximum hundreds. Oh, Cat, what do you need on? Charles has got it in for me. He never votes for me. Um, I'm going to. I what made you the winner? Oh, that's true. (laughs) When there was when there was an audience that would have rebelled otherwise, Um, I'm going to go for Jess's. But if I was, and I, what I would do is, if I was on the right wing press, mm. I would pitch it as a cost saving ahead of the autumn statement, um, because it just seems, you know, that's the way to their heart, and it seems like a non-brainer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I will, without question, I learned most about exempt accommodation, and um, it's one of those stories which just layers and layers and layers. It's layers of what's right by people, the way in which we allow money to make money the way in which local government and government works and there's just more to it and there's more to it in people's real lives I'm embarrassed to say it, I still lead with <laughs> Sam Altman's <laughs> open AI and the reason is 
<laughs> I just can't believe that people with that much power and money behave so irresponsibly like and recklessly. People, there's nine people Can in I charge of the entire world, the it seems, sometimes. Absolutely. Who elected them? No, no we one. We should be able to topple them. There must be a way of toppling them. But Have the we got opposite. a statue? Make a statue. I think <laughs> there, there is over. a way. It's called AI. Okay. It's going to destroy okay. everything. Can we topple That's them? not toppling. That's just replacing. It's a whole different problem. Um... Charles Wattel, Kat Nealon and Jess Phillips, thank you very much for coming in and being part of this news meeting. As I mentioned at the start, you can join us for a live recording of the news meeting on Wednesday evening by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That's to join us at the news meeting on Wednesday in our newsroom, tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. We'll be dissecting what the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has said in his autumn statement that afternoon. And Bashat Cummings is also going to be here to tell us about her latest investigation, Walter's War. It takes you into the worlds of national security, defence and artificial intelligence, all places where it turns out that a good story is going to take you far. But it all starts with a guy and a girl in London and a romance that upends her life. You can listen to it on Tortoise Investigates from Tuesday, so I'm going to leave you with a trailer just to whet your appetite. And whilst you're listening, do follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Last year, I met a woman for a coffee, and she told me that she had a story. It starts in London over a decade ago. Charlie was a young graduate trying to find her feet in the world. A new city, new friends, new job. It was just really exciting. And soon she meets a dashing diplomat who's just back from Afghanistan. People like me reading intelligence reports. Pretty quickly, she falls in love. She's enamoured with the world that he lives in. And with his encouragement, she applies for a job in British intelligence. She's optimistic. The interview goes well. I was just sat at my desk and I looked down at my mobile phone and I got... But then she receives a text message. It didn't mention his name, but it was so obvious to me that that's who it was about. That turns her life and her relationship upside down. Yeah, I just couldn't believe it. It was like the bottom fell out of everything. I was just so shocked. She discovers that the story he's told her about his life, well, it's not what it seems. What could the motivation possibly be? I still think that's how I feel a little bit today and it's probably why... I'm here right now is because I just want to know why he's done this. Ten years later, a mystery is still hanging over Charlie. She's watched this man climb to the top of academia, the civil service, and into the world of national security. And she's seen him set up a billion-dollar company, claiming that it's going to build the technology to save us in a new era of warfare. Whenever someone describes me, it always sounds like someone I'd prefer to meet. But then people started asking questions about that company, too. What they do is figure out how you see the world. They tell you what you want to hear. They tell you what you already believe. The dashing diplomat had found himself in a world where someone with a good story can go far. What was the word that you used earlier, the name for people who... Walter. And what? tell me what that Walter is. Walter Mitty, a man who makes up stories. Walter's War is an investigation into big tech and national security, hype and hucksterism. But where does the story end and the truth begin? Tortoise.
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.